here, Laban's hot pursuit of Jacob. Why would Laban pursue Jacob? Jacob gets up, he takes his daughters, that's Laban's daughters, who are Jacob's wives. He takes his children and he heads out because he wants to go back to Canaan, his home country. In fact, there was, and we looked at it last week, a word from God that actually said to Jacob, get up, get out, go home. So he's following God's directives. But yeah, there's, there's trouble in the way he did it. <laughs> and, and that's why he's in trouble with Laban. So Laban hears about this, but it's like a third day. Jacob has a head start. So Laban decides he, he's not going to let this lie. He, he's going to do something about it. He is going to pursue Jacob and find out what has gone on. And we want to note from, the, from our outline today, what are the reasons, the three reasons, there are three, what are the three reasons that Laban uh, pursued Jacob? Well, number one is that Jacob left secretly without notifying Laban. Ah, that's not good when you do something like that. Like I said, he had a three-day start, verse 22. It took Laban seven days, verse 23, for him to catch up to uh, Jacob And when Laban finally did overtake Jacob, he, with the many relatives that he had taken along, confronted Jacob, saying, verse 27, Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harp? In other words, I would have thrown a party for you if you would just let me know <laughs> that you were going to leave. But you didn't let me, need, let me know. What's going on here? You know, I think Laban has a valid point. How would you like your house guests, let alone your nephew, sneaking off in the night with not so much as a farewell or a goodbye? Is this the way families should conduct themselves? Well, it's the way he, this tells us there's trouble in this family. Well, that said, Jacob does have a reason for his actions and his fears have some foundation. Look at verse 31. Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid. Well, why would he be afraid? He tells us, because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. That tells us there is tension between Jacob and Laban. This is not a, you know, they're, they're not acting as a very loving and caring family. He is afraid that he's going to lose his wives. Why would he think that? Well, because Laban's attitude toward Jacob has changed, verse 5, namely, he is jealous of Laban's prosperity at his expense. That is, as he sees it, at his expense. And though, even though he has tried to outmaneuver Jacob by changing his wages ten times, verse 5, God intervened and Jacob prospered, Laban's treachery notwithstanding, verse 9. So, Jacob got richer. I wouldn't say that uh, Laban got poor, but he was poorer because the livestock that was born to Laban was of inferior quality. So that's the first reason. You know, you snuck off in the middle of the night. What, what's with that? Number two, there's a second reason. Laban pursued Jacob, and that was because Jacob fled without giving Laban an opportunity to say farewell to his daughters and his grandchildren. Laban's very words, verse 28, You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. Now again, I have to ask, how upset would you be if your son-in-law fled in the night, taking your daughter and your grandchildren with him? No goodbyes, no fare-thee-wells just sneaking away under the cover of darkness, leaving no forwarding address nor a phone number where they could be reached. Well, how upset was Laban? Look at verse 29. He tells Jacob, I have the power to harm you. Ooh. Not something you want to hear from your father-in-law. I have the power harm you. And that, brethren, was undeniably true. 
Laban had made his pursuit of Jacob, not alone, not alone, but accompanied by taking his relatives with him, verse 23, and the relatives are camped at Gilead with Laban, verse 25. What did Jacob have? Well, he had two wives, he had two concubines, he had some servants, he had 11 children raging in various ages, but all of them still very young, no match for any evil that Laban might contemplate doing. It's, I mean, it's such a, such a lopsided scale here. Laban has accused Jacob of actions similar to a robber. Look at verse 26. You've deceived me and carried off my daughters like what? Like captives in war. Ooh. These are pretty, these are harsh accusations. Do you remember when Lot was captured by the Federation of Kings that attacked Sodom? And Abraham pursued him and rescued him using 318 trained servants from his own household? Now here we have Laban. He's steamed enough to tell Jacob, you are a deceiver, you're a sneak, and you're a robber but has taken my own daughters captive as though they were the spoils of war. You've done a very foolish thing. And I have the power to give you a good and well-deserved thrashing. This is very true. Very true. So what's holding Laban back? Verse 29. Here's in his own words. Last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And the actual text is verse 24. So once again, God has intervened on Jacob's behalf. Laban may have the physical wherewithal to harm Jacob for his deception and secret escape in the night, but he had best curb his anger and mitigate his cruelty. He is contemplating to do in hurting Jacob. Fortunately, Laban recognized this and cooler heads prevailed. There's a third reason that Laban pursued Jacob. I think perhaps the most important of all. And that is verse 30. Let me paraphrase it for you. Jacob, I understand that you may have run away because you're homesick for your family after being away for 20 years. But stealing my gods, that's going too far. Verse 30. Verse 32 tells us that Jacob had no knowledge that Rachel had in fact stolen her father's gods. So it's not surprising that he basically gave Laban wide-scale permission, search the tents, go for it. And he issued the directive that anyone in his family found with stolen goods Belonging to Laban would be put to death, verse 32. And so, and so, the search began. Laban first began with Jacob's tent, and then Leah's tent, and then her two maidservants. But he came up, verse 33 says, empty-handed. Next was Rachel's tent. She was <laughs> the culprit. But she had hidden the idols on a camel saddle upon which she was sitting, and she explained that she could not rise because she was having her menstrual cycle, verse 35, and again because he came up empty-handed. There's nothing that he could do. So what happens? Point two, Jacob explodes, and I think you would explode too. Finally, Jacob had had it up to here with his father-in-law, Laban. He erupted. Verse 36 says, he took Laban to task, saying, what does he say? What is my crime? I could just see him. What is my crime? What sin have I committed? You've searched all my belongings, whatever you found that belongs to you, put here in front of us all, your relatives and mine, that a fair assessment may be made between the two of us. Verse 37. Okay, you did your search. Now what did you find? Put it out here on the ground and let us decide if I have indeed been a thief. 
Oh, he was just getting started. Jacob was just getting started. Next, he reminded Laban that he, Jacob, had served Laban for 20 years. And in all that time, Laban's livestock never miscarried, nor did Jacob feed himself or his family off of Laban's livestock. And when wild animals attacked Laban's herds, Jacob bore the loss. Jacob bore the loss, not Laban. And when thieves stole sheep or goats, Laban demanded payment from Jacob, of all people. And on top of all this, it was Jacob, not Laban, in the heat of the day and the cold of the night, verse 40, melting in the desert sun, watching the flocks and freezing in the desert night, while Laban was home asleep. You think the scale's a little lopsided here as to who might have a complaint? What had, what had Laban done during all these 20 years? Laban saw to it that he made money off his own daughters, selling one, then the other, to Jacob, verse 41, also verse 15, each with a seven-year hard labor price tag on them. Then six more years of hard labor caring for Laban's livestock. All the while, Laban became the master cheater, changing Jacob's wages ten different times. Verse 41. Who's the thief? Laban was the thief. Not Jacob. Robbing Jacob of his rightful, rightfully earned wages. And if it had not been for God's intervention, Laban would have sent Jacob away penniless without giving it a second thought. But God was watching Jacob, and God was protecting him, even warning Laban with a rebuke, verse 42. He tells the dream that he had where God spoke to him, and Jacob interprets it. He said, you know what, Laban? That was God rebuking you last night. Well, boy, things are pretty tense at this point. Son-in-law going head-to-head -head with father-in-law. Both had probably said too much, and I, I know they had done too much, but it was all out in the open now. <laughs> you know, the veil had been pulled back. Communication had almost come to a standstill, and we wonder if the relationship can be saved. Can it be saved? Boy, that's the third point. In Laban's rebuttal to Jacob's, I think it was kind of like a tirade. Boy, when he got going on his list, you did this and did, you know, and the smoke was just, did you see it coming out of Laban, or out of Jacob, rather? Well, in Laban's rebuttal, he proposes, get this now, he proposes a peace treaty. Whoa. And I think Laban wisely began to cool things down after getting in his final licks. Verse 43, Laban answered, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks. All that you see are mine there. It would have been better if he'd have said, all that you see were mine. That would have been a more accurate assessment, but Laban's pride would not let him go that far. Nonetheless, observe Laban's confession and his solution. He says, yet what can I do about these daughters of mine or about the children they have borne? What's he saying? He's confessing. What's done has been done, and I can't change it. My daughters have made their choice to flee my household with you, Jacob. They've taken my grandchildren with them. It's a done deal. So what can I do? But Laban has something on his mind that he would like to propose to Jacob that could be done. I can't change what has been, but I have a proposal. Look at verse 44. Come now, Jacob, 
Let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. In other words, he's saying, let's put an end to our arguing, our anger, our jumping down each other's throats every time one of us speaks. Uh, let's, uh, Let's make peace. To Jacob's credit, he was quick to comply. He took a stone and then he invited all of Laban's relatives. They're all there, you know, they're hearing all this to do the same thing. And together they formed a heap of stones there on the border. And Laban named it, I, this is Aramaic, so if I mess it up, Jagar Saj Ahudath. And Jacob called it Galid. Laban was speaking Aramaic, Jacob was speaking Hebrew. But both names mean the same thing. It means witness heap. Heap of rocks, witness heap. So here was going to be a permanent witness to the peace treaty that they were making that day, verse 48. Laban further named the pillar of stones Mizpah, verse 49, his thinking being, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. So it's like the Lord's witness, Mizpah. Now people read this, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. And many think this is a, this is a wonderful benediction that we could use with each other. If you look in our, in our hymnal, uh, under some of the closing uh, benedictions for uh, worship service, you will sign, find these words written, in, in music form. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You know, and it goes on like that and so forth. Uh, so they think this is a great benediction. Sounds downright cordial, doesn't it? Well, however, this is not what Laban meant. What he has been saying, and you have to go to the context, just go to the next verse, verse 50. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take my wife, any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is witness between you and me. Again, verse 52. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor judge between us. This was a peace treaty. But it is a peace treaty that uh, evidences some suspicion. And so to safeguard, to certain safeguards were put in to the peace treaty to keep each other in line lest their anger flare up again. Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. Strange thing. We'll talk about that later. And he invited all the relatives to seal the deal with a meal. That's the way they did covenants back in Old Testament time. The name given to God here, fear, the fear of his father Isaac. Why would Jacob entitle his father's God as the fear. Well, I think it has, uh, it was because Jacob remembered that God had said all along that he, the younger son, would have preeminence over Esau, the brother. But, but his father Isaac, in utter disregard for God's wishes, tried to foil God's will by blessing Esau instead. We have studied that portion of Scripture. And at the very moment of that proposed blessing, the realization of Isaac's sin set in upon him, and we are told, Isaac trembled violently. He trembled violently. He knew at that instance that God Almighty was not one to toy with. 
God's will was done despite Isaac's attempt to the contrary, and it shook him to the core of his very being with fear at just how defiant and reckless he had been before a holy God. He had come that close. And so God is viewed as the fear of Isaac. Well, this peace treaty was signed. Next morning we read Laban kissed his daughters, kissed his grandchildren, goodbye, and he and Jacob parted company. Laban returned home, and Jacob went on towards his homeland of, of Canaan. I don't think ever to see each other again. I think this was it. I think this was a done deal. Saranara, goodbye. They said their goodbyes. Laban went back. Jacob went back. And that was that. Boy, a lot of sin in this text, isn't there? And a lot of trouble. Why does God have this in the text for us? Well, there are some spiritual, there's some spiritual food for our souls from this account of Laban's pursuit. Number one is this, that two people of deception will eventually clash and have to part company. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, you know that, as duly noted before, tricked his brother into relinquishing his birthright for a bowl soup. And then he conspired with his mother in a ruse to deceive Isaac, his father, into bestowing the family blessing on him when his father's intentions were no such thing. Isaac planned to bless Esau, regardless of what God said. Then hours or days at the most, after Jacob arrived at Haran and Laban took him in as an employee, Jacob negotiated his wages. He wanted Rachel to be his bride. But the day after the wedding, when the veil was removed, behold, it was Leah, Rachel's older sister, that Laban had married off to Jacob, not Rachel. <laughs> Jacob, the deceiver, had met his match in Laban, the deceiver. And for the entire 20 years that Jacob Served Laban seven years for each daughter, six more to compensate Laban for livestock. Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times. This mutual animosity society had to eventually come to an end, and I'm surprised that it took 20 years before these two men parted company. The narrative indicates that it was Jacob's gracious compliance with Jacob's with Laban's trickery that was responsible for them remaining together and working together as long as they did. Neither man followed the biblical protocol for peace. You know, one of the accusations that Paul brought against the Corinthian church was the divisiveness of their church. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Clo's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 and 11. And then Paul returns to this theme two chapters later saying, you're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, well, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3 and 4. Where, where's the transformation that the Spirit of God should have in your life? You're just acting like people of the world. 
In order for harmony to result when there are people voicing strong positions, one has to give in. One has to say to himself or herself, enough, enough. And henceforth work for harmony and peace. John Kasich, governor of Ohio, candidate for the presidency, tried to do this in the last Republican debate with Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were punching each other with derogatory verbal blows, each denigrating the other to try to win points from the electorate. You're a liar. Well, no, you're the liar. And back and forth they were going. I remember Governor Kasich saying something like this. Folks, isn't this just wonderful? <laughs> isn't this why we tuned in? Isn't this what you want to hear in your candidates for president? He was trying to bring coolness to the arguments. He was unsuccessful, but at least he tried, and I give him credit for that. You know, it's easy to vent. It's hard to compose yourself. It's the way of the world to vent. Mere men to set off a little steam. But Jesus, the most verbally abused and denigrated man in history, has taught his people, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Matthew 5, verse 9. Same chapter, verse 23 and following. If you're offering your gift at the altar, so they're in the process of worshiping God here, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Notice the urgency. Just drop it. Just leave it. Why? First, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court and do it while you're still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge will hand you over to the officer and the officer will throw you into prison. He's saying, and this is the same text, Matthew 5 of the Beatitudes, be a peacemaker. 20 years, brethren, that's a long time to be battling back and forth for preeminence and advantage. May the Lord give you and me the grace of repentance concerning our own sin and forgiveness for the sins others do towards us. A tremendous lesson to learn here. You want to spend 20 years locked horns with somebody that you're having difficulty with? Lesson two, sometimes we make bold statements without acknowledging all the facts. I say, well, what do you mean by that? Jacob secretly left Laban's household while Laban was off shearing sheep. He put a three-day journey between himself and his father-in-law. It took Laban seven days to catch up with Jacob in Gilead, but by that time, he was seeing red. So he threatened Jacob, saying, You have done a foolish thing, and I have the power to harm you. I have the power. That's a bold claim. But ignores the intervention of God on behalf of Jacob. In Job's ordeal, Satan, the mastermind of all evil, accused Job of being faithful to God only because God had built a hedge around him and protected him and his family from all adversity. What was he telling God this? Well, because Satan needed a special dispensation from God to prove his point, which was, stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, he, he will surely curse you, 
to your face. Job 1, verse 11. And so Satan was given permission to do this very thing, which he eagerly did, killing all of Job's sons and daughters, servants, confiscating all of his wealth in a day, in a day. You think you've got problems. And so his boast was this. Strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. But Job did not curse God to his face. Job remained faithful. Next boast. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all that he has for his own life. Stretch out your hands and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Job 2, verse 4 and 5. Again, God said to Satan, very well. He's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, we read, and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job 2, verse 6, verse 7. To add insult to injury, Job's wife advocated that he curse God and die. To which Job responded, you're talking like a foolish woman, that is, you're talking like an unbeliever. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he had said. Job 2, verse 10. Satan was foiled again. You say, well, what's your point? My point is this. Sinners who boast, in this case it was the devil, sinners who boast do not reckon with all the facts. Satan is not omniscient. He knows only what he observes or what he plans to do, God permitting. But even these things depend on God's power. Laban boasted to Jacob, I have the power to harm you. Verse 21. But just the night before, God had warned him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Jacob explained God's words to Laban this way, last night God rebuked you. Verse 42. You better read the message correctly, Laban. God was rebuking you. What's the thought? You should temper your boast by considering all the facts. One day in the distant future, Jesus stood before the governor of Rome, Pontius Pilate, who scolded Jesus for refusing to answer his questions. Pilate said to Jesus, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. John 19, verse 10. If you're going to make assertive statements, if we're going to boast, Paul's practice should be our practice. He says, it is because of him, God, that you, me, all of us, are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, Jesus is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 and 31. There's a way to boast that won't get you in trouble. The way to boast is to give God the glory for your successes, for your rescues, for your prosperity, for all those things maybe even for your discipline that keeps you from sin. Give God the glory. Third lesson. How hard we hang on to our idols, even when the true and living God of heaven has made his presence and his will known. Are you surprised that Isaac and Rebekah would send Jacob back to Rebekah's homeland because, in Rebekah's words, here it is, and Rebekah said to Isaac, 
I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. Those were the wives that Esau had married. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Genesis 27, verse 46 and following. The Canaanite culture of which the Hittites were part was a culture of idol worshipers. And as such, they engaged in gross sexual immorality and in some cases, the sacrifice of their own children to appease their God. Jacob spent 20 years with Laban, Rebekah's brother, Yet what do we find as his main concern when he pursued Jacob? What had him the most irritated? Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house. He's okay with that. He is. He, you know, I understand. You've gone off because you're homesick and you want to go back home and see your family. But why did you steal my gods? Genesis 31, verse 30. And when Jacob did make his break from Laban, why are we told, verse 19, Rachel stole her father's household gods? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm thinking here, <clears throat> aren't these supposed to be believers in Jehovah? Laban, Rachel, you know, the household. Isn't that why Rebecca wanted to send him back to her family? Well, this teaches us that even when known as the people of God, we may still cling to the idols of our past. If not tangible items made of gold and silver, carved stone, whatever, certainly what Ezekiel records... When any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man and I will make him an example and a byword. I will cut him off from my people and then you all know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed the prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people, Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consulted him. Ezekiel 14, verses 7 through 10. Idols of the heart. What's an idol of the heart? Well, in the context, it'll tell you. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile me, defile themselves rather, anymore with all of their sins. They will be my people and I will be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. Ezekiel 14, verse 11. The sins, brethren, that we bow down to, the sins that we serve, are the idols of the heart. Lust. I'm going to talk about that with the men on uh, men's retreat this coming weekend. Power. Greed. Bitterness. Pride. Hatred. Jealousy and envy. A lot of that in Laban's house. Jacob's house. Ignorance when we should know, laziness when we should be doing, indifference towards other, arrogance, being of a non-teachable spirit. The list is almost endless. Everything the world loves and adores and worships over God can be in our heart as an idol. And a constant vigil is needed to eradicate these idols from our heart and to keep them at bay. Laban and Rachel, at this point in her life, seem to be at peace with the God substitutes. And it angered 
You've not come to a full knowledge of what it means to be a worshiper of the We can have idols of the heart where we bow down to our sin when we know better, when we will not repent, we will not change our mind, we will not change our actions because we love our sin. I have this problem. You have this problem. Every believer has this problem. Lesson four. It's wise to fear God and not speak of him or address him in flippant terms. Irreverence towards God is epidemic in our country, in the world, in fact. People speak of God as the man upstairs, big daddy in the sky, and so on. What, what, what should we know about, let's just talk, what should we know about the name of God? Now again, we get our definitions from the book. Here's what God says in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. And it's L-O-R-D, all in caps, I am Jehovah God. I am the great I am. He goes on, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And then a few chapters later, also in the book of, I, of Ezekiel, my people have been taken away for nothing and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord, and all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Isaiah 52, verse 5. God's watching how we use his name. Yeah, Exodus 20, part of the Ten Commandments. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. And yet every day, over the airways, with the people with whom we come in contact, Friends, relatives, fellow employees, an employer, the boss, they're goddamning this and goddamning that. We're using God's name to damn people. They're not looking into the mirror of the word and seeing what perhaps their heart relationship is with God. Why do people treat God with such disdain? Why do they see it as a little matter to blaspheme God's name? Well, Paul describes the wicked in these terms, and here it is. Their throats are open graves. Just the symbolism of that nauseates me. You want to open a grave? What would happen if you opened a grave? Jesus wanted to do that with the tomb of Lazarus, and Martha says, you know, <laughs> got to say this to you, Jesus. Got to say this to you, Lord. He's been in there four days. And four days in the hot Palestinian sun, that's something you want to do. Behold, he stinketh, <laughs> the King James says. There's going to be an odor. Well, here Paul says, of the wicked, their throats are an open grave. They spew stink. He goes on. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin, misery, mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. Why, why, why? He tells us. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's why. Romans 3, 13 through 18. There's no fear of God. They've made God into their own image. They make God into little idols. They don't fear their idols. Of course, they wouldn't fear their idols. The idols can't do anything to them. They can't do anything for them either. 
And if they view God that way and continue to view God that way, they're not afraid of God. You know, one does not have to be a believer to fear God. And it is insane not to fear God. But insanity rules in our day. <laughs> to Jacob's credit, though, he has not yet come to personal faith in God. When he takes his oath to seal the peace treaty with Laban, his phrase, his promise is this. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac. It's a strange way to say it, isn't it? We would say, why don't you just put your hand up, put your hand on the Bible and say, what? Based on the pledge, pledge I promise, I swear, I got my hand on the Bible. Jacob can't do that. He knows he can't do that. So he takes the oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He is saying, I may not know there is to, all there is to know about God, but my father Isaac feared God. Dad reverenced him. Dad trusted him, depended upon him. I can do no better than to confirm my oath on the fear of God exhibited in my Now you say, well, that's kind of uh, going around the circumlocution. That's going around the barn, isn't it? Yeah, but the guy's being honest. And by the way, faith in God has its roots in the fear of God. Salvation is the outcome. Let me read it for you. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints. But let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him. That his glory may dwell in our land. Psalm 85, verse 89. I think Jacob made a giant leap forward when he voiced his oath to Laban in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac. The giant leap. Young people, let me talk to you here a minute. You may be able to do the same. I've been thinking about this. You don't know God, but your father knows God, or your mother knows God, or both of them know God, hopefully. So you can cry out to God, seeking to know him, asking to be heard by him, anticipating his forgiveness and salvation, pleading with that one whom your parents already know, love and fear, And the promise that God gives is this. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. Taste, see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. Psalm 34, verse 4. Maybe this morning you don't know God. But a relative that you have, a mother, a father, a wife, a husband, a brother, a sister, they know, the, they know God and you know they know God. I think you could pray, Lord, I don't know them like aunt so-and-so. I don't know you. But if you're real, I've seen it in her life. I've seen it in my brother-in-law's life. I've seen it. In my father's life, my mother's life, I want that for me. I want that for me. Show yourself real. Fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. This was a good prayer Jacob prayed.
And in the next chapter, miracles will happen. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for Jacob's life and his honesty. I like this. He, doesn't, he does not dare pray and use your name as though he was right with you. He is a sinner and he knows that. He's been a deceiver. He even tried black magic to increase the livestock with his little game of striped branches and all that kind of stuff that he did. He's not acknowledging you. But in time, he, he's coming to that. He's, he tells Laban, you know, if God had not been with me, I, you would have left me penniless. And that's true. So he's being, beginning to see the hand of God in his life, even though he deserves nothing but the wrath of God. I pray for people here today. Uh, may, maybe uh, they can see the life of, uh, the life of God in their, in their relative, their friend, their neighbor, and, and they can honestly say, well, I, I don't know if I ever pray to God that he'll hear me or answer my prayers, but I can pray with the hope that that same fear that those people have would become my God as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get past our stubbornness and our sinfulness and our ignorance. Get, get us past it, Lord. And let us enter into the joy of those around us that know Christ, know the Lord, fear God, and have received his salvation, which they would gladly pray with thanksgiving to see you enter into the same kingdom and the same joy. Lord, we know that salvation is of the Lord. Jonah said that. Salvation is of the Lord. In other words, you, you are the one that's going to do it. Paul says you opened Lydia's heart to listen to the sermon that Paul was preaching at Philippi. You did that. And uh, you've done it for everyone here this morning that knows Christ. You opened our heart. We were stubborn. We had the walls built up. We had our own thinking. We had our sin that we loved and we didn't want to be forgiven or cleansed or have a new heart or anything. We just loved our life the way it was. But you came into our lives and you shook us up. I pray that you will do that for any unbelieving person this morning. That you will make yourself real to them, known to them, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things for your glory and our good. Amen.